would turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 32 today. Again, thank you for giving sacrificially to our Annie Armstrong Christmas Easter offering. It is uh, a very strategic offering because 100% of that money goes on the ground. We don't receive one dime of that, and none of it goes to administrative cost. 100% of it goes to missionaries in North America who are ministering in the hard places. A couple of announcements. Uh, we have our Good Friday service this year on April the 2nd at 6 p.m. Please plan to not only be there, but also pray for that service, April the 2nd. And then tonight we are having services again at 6 p.m. And we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 15. So pray for that. Well, if you would, look with me in Ephesians 4. And again, for context, let's look beginning in verse 22. And then we'll be focusing our time in verses 28 to 32. And Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, to put off your old self. That's the old man, the old person in Adam, right? Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, that is the new self in Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And now he's going to give us specific examples of what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new. And then he gives you a, a theological reason for doing so, to renew your mind. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So this is written to Christians, those whose sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ and essentially is the motivating factor behind everything we do as believers in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We need this passage as a means of growth and maturity, character, conformity to Christ. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that your spirit would empower me to preach this in a manner that is befitting of the importance and the gravity of this text. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago was the 40th anniversary of the day 12-year-old Todd Domboski was playing in his grandmother's backyard in Centralia, Pennsylvania, and the earth gave way beneath him. Fortunately, he grabbed hold of some uh, tree roots, and his cousin came to save him, or he would have fallen 150 feet. That's 15 stories. 150 feet into a, a burning pit. 20 years earlier... There was a, a trash dump set uh, that, uh, that just set on fire, that, and, and it caught fire to the coal beneath the ground. And, and the fire was put out on the surface, but beneath 
the surface, the coal smoldered for 30 or 20 years. One article said this, this was a world where no human could live. Hotter than the planet Mercury, its atmosphere as poisonous as Saturn's, at the core, temperatures exceeded 1,000 degrees, lethal clouds of carbon monoxide and other gases swirled through the rock chambers. And now it continues to smolder and will continue to smolder until the coals are eventually eliminated. They're estimating some 250 years. That's in Centralia, Pennsylvania. There's been millions upon millions of dollars poured into it trying to put out these fiery coals, but to no avail. Humans can't control it. They can't contain it. And now as of 2020, that's the latest figures we have, there's only five residents who live in Centralia, Pennsylvania. It's the least populated town in the state of Pennsylvania. I think this is illustrative of what our unchecked sinful natures do. It leads, it always leads, to alienation in devastation. To use the language of that article, it's a world where no human can live, at least not the way God intended us to live. And like these smoldering coals that no one can contain in Centralia, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves about our sin nature. But now, But now we know that Jesus' death was a death to sin. Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. I love that language, once for all. Ephipax in Greek, one word to describe that phrase, once for all. Jesus Christ has died to sin once for all. And it's in this death that we participate when the Holy Spirit that we are uh, sealed with brings us to share in Jesus' death to sin. And so this old self that we've been talking about, that Paul speaks about in verse 22, is all that we were in Adam. Before we were united to Jesus, all that we were in the flesh, under the dominion of sin, under the condemnation of the law, and destined to eternal death. But the old self, for every believer, has been crucified with Jesus. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, by virtue of our union in him, we were crucified with him. And so while this is true representatively in Jesus at the cross, it's true of us personally. It's true of us experientially by the Spirit when He regenerates us and we repent and believe. You know what this means? This means we are redeemed from the curse of sin and the power of sin by the blood of Jesus. But not only are we redeemed, we're resourced. Now, what do I mean by resourced? We are given the resources to live out the Christian life, the life of faith. And those resources are essentially the third person of the Trinity and the Word of God. But with that said, having broken with our past addiction and love to sin, this creates rather than destroys conflict with it. Those who aren't believers, they don't have a conflict with sin, but we do, and hence the need for the New Testament commands. These commands are not given to us in order that we might be saved. They are given to those who have been saved. This is what honors God in the life of faith. And so as we come to verse 28, he's continuing that pattern of specific examples of what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new. And the first thing we see in verse 28, he says, to put off the former life of stealing and put on the new life of honesty. Look at me in verse 28. 
He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, in the context, Paul is likely referring to the Christians in Ephesus and in that area who, who by their con, before their conversion, were used to lining their pockets by means of petty larceny, all right, and, and other sordid means of that nature. And the patterns that we develop before we become believers, right? But before we become Christians are, are often liable to rear their ugly head in times of pressure and in times of temptation. You understand that? We're not perfected yet. And so as Christians, the old patterns tend to rear their ugly head in times of testing and pressure. But with that said... There's no command in Scripture. And when I see this, my first thought is, this doesn't apply to me. I really didn't steal before I was a Christian. I was not a thief before I was a believer. Maybe there were some who were. But as I'm meditating on that, I come to this conclusion, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. But it's hard for us to process as believers, isn't it? Uh, according to George Barna, listen to this, nearly 90% of believers claim that they have never broken the Eighth Commandment, which is, thou shalt not steal. 90% of believers claim they have never broken the Eighth Commandment. Of course, for most of us, the temptation isn't to bur burglarize. Uh, a few weeks ago, Ella was looking out of her window when she saw some, some lights, middle of the night, and four, four teenage uh, um, people. There's just some things you can't say in a pulpit. Had broken into Heather's car, middle of the night. And uh, she... She put her light up, and they fled. And, and that most, most thieves are that way. A teenage girl ran them off. You know, they're cowards. Um, most of us aren't tempted to rob. Most of, most of us are not tempted to hijack or shoplift or, or pickpocket or purse snatch or embezzle or extort, fill in the blank. And, and we're astounded when we hear anecdotes like about one hotel I read about. In the first year that this hotel opened, they had to replace 38,000 spoons, 18,000 tiles. Why would you steal tiles? 355 coffee pots and 100 Bibles. That didn't even mention the towels <laughs> that probably went missing. But could it be that there are more Christians than we realize who steal from the government by cheating on their taxes or by making false claims uh, on disability. And what about theft at work? Calling in sick when you really aren't sick. Failing to put in a full day's work are playing on company time. In fact, studies show that employee theft of time and property costs for U.S. companies more than $200 billion a year. So it costs companies $200 billion a year for just for the hijinks that their employees commit on company time. And, and, and this cost consumers, because according to estimates, as much as one-third of a product's cost, get this, has to cover the various forms of stealing in the marketplace. Point is, 
When we go to the store and purchase something, it costs more than it should because the employees for that company steal. Now, Paul says, lest you are still tempted to do that in times, the alternative to stealing is to work. It's to work. And faithful work in itself is a witness to the world. Sinclair Ferguson, many of you know who Sinclair Ferguson was, a world-class theologian and pastor. Uh, his testimony is, is so beautiful in that he was led to Christ by a man who was led to Christ by a woman who worked for him, a Christian woman who worked for him, who, was, who, who worked so hard on her job as a typist. It opened up the door for her to share the gospel with him. And, and then he, in turn, led Sinclair Ferguson to Christ. And, and we work, yes, for our witness. Christians should be the hardest workers. Christians should be the most faithful employees. But in the text, it says we work in order to share. In other words, the government should not be the ones doing the handouts, but churches should be ministering to those who are in true need, not those who refuse to work. Paul says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, aside from those who are not capable of physically working. And this is kingdom giving is what I like to call it. Kingdom giving. Jerry Bridges says there's three basic perspectives on our possessions. And this fits each one of us. One of these three represents each one of us. The first perspective is what, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. That's the, that's the perspective of a thief. And it's the perspective of many today who believe they deserve handouts. Second, what's mine is mine. I will keep it. This is the way of the selfish owner. And the third perspective, and it's perspective that largely represents this body, I have been astounded at the sacrificial giving of Fisherville Baptist, especially in matters of the Great Commission. What's mine is God's. I'll share it. That's the perspective of a mature Christian. Our Kent Hughes says, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. He's saying there it's easy for money to be our God. And he says, every time we give, it is a perpetual de-deification of money. And Paul would say, that it's a sign that the gospel has taken root in your life. Because as I've said many times, the gospel order is this. Grace comes down, I experience it in Jesus. Gratitude goes out, I'm grateful for his grace. And generosity flows. So it's grace, gratitude, and generosity. That was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, for you know, and it's in the context where he's calling the church to give to the offering for the, for the destitute believers in Jerusalem. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that for your sake, he through his poverty, or he through his wealth became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's the motivation behind our generous giving. Paul says... Put off that former life of being a thief in whatever capacity that might be. Put on honesty. The second point you see here in verse 29, and he's going to get in our real business here uh, because I believe that this might indict the majority of believers in some way. Put off the former life of corrupt speech and put on the life of edification. Verse 29. He says, 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that word corrupting, maybe your translation reads unwholesome. There's a semantic range to that. I think corrupting is a better translation because it was a word that was used in the first century for rotten trees and rotten fruit, all right? So when applied to our talk, it it, it could refer to unkind, ungracious words, or even vulgar talk that corrupts not only the speaker, but the hearer. And it doesn't even have to be words I speak from my mouth. It could be words I type on Facebook. Let no unwholesome talk come out. Let no corrupting talk come out of my mouth. You know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the words we speak The words we type, the words we text, the words we think are all reflections of what has captured our hearts. Our words are a thermometer. The heart is the thermostat. You understand the distinction there? In other words, our mouths are the agents of our hearts. And wholesome, corrupting language does three things. First of all, it harms the unity of the body. Again, the context, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the, bond, through the bonds of peace. We, we recognize unity as a central uh, theme in, in, in the book of Ephesians. Paul recognizes that unity... Reconciliation was achieved through Jesus, and we are to display that to a a divided, fractured world. The world should be able to see us and and find what we are as compelling. Look at their unity. These people have nothing in common but Jesus, and he is enough to bring unity. But unity also is harmed by corrupting talk. Now, again, the context is the local church. You can apply this as well in the workplace and certainly in your home and in your family. It harms unity, can even destroy it. Second uh, thing it does is it mars our witness to the world. You don't have a witness if you're known for your corrupting talk, if you're known for your horrific Facebook post. Because you want to make a point, and the point you make is more important to you than your witness to the world. What else it does is it reveals deeper sin. Corrupting talk reveals deeper sin. As I said earlier, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. William Farley, listen to his words from a book that he wrote on on gospel humility. He says, and I've... (laughs) I have always found this paragraph so haunting and and convicting. He says, record your speech for a day and, and then meditate on what it says about your heart condition. A disloyal heart gossips. A proud heart criticizes. A heart filled with selfish ambition leaks jealousy. A hateful heart slanders. A fearful heart speaks words of anxiety and stress. A heart that fears man avoids confrontation or flatters. An insecure heart boasts. An ambitious heart speaks words of self-promotion. An ungrateful heart grumbles and complains. Maybe none of those apply to you, but they certainly apply to to your pastor. 
Paul says, you've been redeemed from all this. That was his whole point in the first three chapters. You've been redeemed. You, you've been redeemed, just to use the language of William Farley, from disloyalty. You've been, dis, you've been redeemed from pride and selfish ambition and hate and fear and insecurity and ingratitude. How were you redeemed? Well, a Savior came. And the Savior, in fulfilling all righteousness, was never disloyal. The Savior was never prideful. He was only humble. He never demonstrated one iota of selfish ambition. He came to glorify the Father. Instead of hate, the Savior loved. Instead of fear, the Savior walked by faith. And instead of insecurity, the Savior found his identity in his Father. And instead of ingratitude, no one in the history of the world embodied thanksgiving like the Savior. And then this Savior who fulfilled all righteousness went to the cross. And on the cross, he was crushed for your disloyalty. He was crushed for your pride. He was crushed for your selfish ambition and hate and sinister fear and insecurity. And now having been redeemed by this Savior and having experienced the grace of God in this Savior, Paul says, let your conversation, let your words give grace that very grace you experienced in him to those who hear. It's remarkable here that your words can actually be a means of grace. It is absolutely remarkable. It's going to do something. One of the things we've learned in speech act theory, that may be a new term for you, but in speech act theory, words always perform a function. And so when you speak... When you post, when you text, your words are performing a function. Those words are either destroying something in your relationship with that person or in their relationship with others, or they're serving as means of grace. And we all know those whose words serve as means of grace. You're drawn to them. You're drawn to them. You, you see them in the hall. You, you make a beeline to them because you need that grace. And you know those who don't. And your natural capacity is to hide and, and go the other direction. Proverbs 12, 18, the tongue of the wise bring healing. What Paul's referring to here is those who've experienced healing in Christ, the tongue of the wise bring healing. The one who's experienced grace is the one who dies to the very sins that Jesus died for, including the sins of the tongue. And those who don't, here's what Paul says. I'll let him use his own language here in verse 30. Those who don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 30. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It comes in the context of corrupting words. Now, this is a haunting reference here, especially when you consider the background. Paul is quoting... Isaiah 63, verse 10. Maybe in your Bible you have a little cross-reference there. He, he's echoing Isaiah 63, 10. And oftentimes when the New Testament writers cite an Old Testament verse, they're assuming you know the context. Because when they wrote these texts, the people they were ministering to often knew their Old Testament very well. What, what's the context of Isaiah? The context is... 
Israel's rebellion against God. After he had showed them great mercy, they had turned God into their enemy, and it had resulted in their exile. They were grieving the Holy Spirit. We're not used to thinking of our actions and our words uh, uh, affecting God's heart, are we? There's something mysterious about that. But Paul says we can grieve God by the way we speak. But, but here's, the, here's the glory of the gospel. It means that you can grieve him without the threat of exile. Because we've been sealed by the Spirit. That's remarkable. Now, if, if, that, if that really catches on, and you, you come to terms with what he's saying there, he's saying you can grieve him and, and still be secure in your relationship, in the sense of your identity in him and your sonship and your adoption. Paul's point is, when you understand that, it should transform your heart. Uh, you don't want to grieve those who love you that much. And that's what love does. We do not want to disappoint those who love us that much. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, the moment you were converted to Christ, you were sealed. And you will be sealed until, notice, the day of redemption. Now, Paul has already said that we've been redeemed. What does he mean, the day of redemption? Well, that's why he's having to lay out these commands. We haven't been fully redeemed. We've been redeemed from the penalty of sin. We've been redeemed from the power of sin. But we haven't been redeemed from the presence of sin. There's coming a day when that redemption will be full. When Christ returns and we will be glorified and we will be perfected once for all. But until that day, we live between the time of the sealing of the Spirit... In the day of redemption. And until that day, between those two poles, Paul says, put off the old self of corrupting speech and put on the new self of edification. Be known for your edification. In other words, for building others up, being a means of grace in the body. What if every Christian in a church was committed to that? It would transform the community. It, it, would, it would impact the nations is what it would do. Well, that brings us to the, the final point here. He says, put off the former life of malice and put on the new life of God-likeness. Again, we, I use that language of God-likeness because back in uh, verse 24, created after the likeness of God. And it'll take us into chapter 5 where we're called to be imitators of God. Look with me in verse 31, final part of this passage. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, a specific example of putting off the old self. Now, Paul doesn't say what's behind that. It is interesting that even in the first century church, a church that was planted by Paul and pastored by Timothy and the Apostle John and Apollos and others, were still having these issues. But normally, this kind of behavior that you see here is the fruit of people in the church turning in on themselves. One writer I read this week insightfully says this, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. Insightful words. 
And, and so we don't know exactly what's going on here in Ephesus, but all of us would agree most of the time this kind of behavior is the fruit of turning in on ourselves. And what is the result? He says, bitterness. It's a real tendency. He says, get, let all bitterness be put away. What is bitterness? You know what bitterness is. I think bitterness here heads the list intentionally, and, and I think uh, malice closes out the list intentionally. Unrepentant bitterness will ultimately lead to unrepentant malice. Bitterness is a callous heart that harbors past resentment. I really don't even have to spend a lot of time on bitterness. I think this is something that all of us have struggled with at some point. But we know that it's among the most poisonous and lethal emotions that you can have. And it's also among the longest lasting. Bitterness. It smolders on and it gnaws away at our minds and our hearts. Hebrews 12 verses 15 to 16 calls it a bitter root. I think the writer there is being intentional uh, when he uses the language of a root. Because what does a root do? It produces fruit. And and it's deep-rootedness, and it produces nasty fruit. That's what bitterness does, sometimes for a lifetime. And those who've had bitterness for a long time, it actually changes their appearance. A lot of times I'll meet someone who is an older person, and you can see on their countenance the fruit of decades of bitterness. Psalm 73, I read that this morning in, in, in my devotional reading. I think Psalm 73 really gives us a, an important yet scary and sobering picture of bitterness, unchecked bitterness. In verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast. Towards you. He's speaking to God. I was like a beast. I was brutish and ignorant because the bitter person can't process anything. The bitter person can't learn new information. They can't hear counsel. They only want to point fingers at everyone around them. You see it often in marriage counseling. Bitterness. It's horrific. And hence Paul's call. But notice as well, he says, get rid of wrath. That is passionate rage. It's the fruit of unchecked bitterness. Anger. Uh, What is anger Uh, in this sense? uh, It's a settled, sullen hostility. It's seething animosity. I've got written in my Bible here a quote from Ed Welch. I wrote this down a long time ago, but I I wrote it under this text on anger. He says, anger shows contempt. You're better than they. That's why you're angry. You're better than the ones you're angry at. Uh, You are smarter, more righteous. You are above, and they are below. That's behind this unchecked anger. Last time we saw there is a righteous anger. This is not the anger he's referring to here. This is selfish anger. And then he says, clamor. Um, This describes excitable people. People who raise their voices in a quarrel and and, and they start screaming. And then he says, slander. Slander. Maybe the most colorful example of slander in the scriptures is from Jeremiah 9. We've been preaching through Jeremiah, and before a pandemic interrupted us, we saw this in Jeremiah 9, verse 8. He says, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans on ambush for him. That is a picture of slander. You speak peace eye to eye, but then 
you plan an ambush behind his or her back. Slander, according to Jeremiah, I think you would inf- he would infer this, is the mark of a coward. It's a coward. It, it's per- participating in talking about another's fault. It's taking pleasure in someone else's ruin or making someone else look ridiculous behind their backs and so harming their reputation. You may as well go steal their gold and silver because their reputation is more important than their gold and silver. And slander destroys it. And in some cases, there's no going back. Again, why these imperatives? Because that's our old self. That's our natural inclination. Paul describes all humanity in Romans 3. Their their throat is an open tomb. They speak cursings and bitterness. Romans 3. And then notice the, the fruit of all this, the last word, and I think it's intentional, along with all malice. The fruit of unchecked bitterness and unchecked all these vices, wrath, anger, bitterness. This is ill will, wishing and plotting evil against those that you are angry towards. It's the fruit of all of the above. Conversely, in their place. So this is putting off the old self. Again, we're looking at specific examples of putting off the old self. And then he closes out this chapter with examples putting on the new self. Praise God for that. He doesn't leave us in the dark. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet. Amen. Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another. It's the word that was used in Luke 6 when Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful. It's godlike to be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Uh, this word is only used elsewhere in 1 Peter 3.8. It, it, it's compassion. It means to be compassionate. That means when you have a tendency to have an attitude towards someone else, it's recognizing that it's likely that person is broken just like you are. How about showing some compassion? Third, he says, forgiving one another. Literally acting in grace towards one another as God in Christ has acted towards us. That's exactly how he ends it, as God in Christ forgave you. And I believe this is so critical for the health of the church and the health of marriages. And because that's one of the, that's the issue. When I do marriage counseling, that is one of the issues. There's bitterness. There's malice. And there has been a failure to forgive. And so I want to close out our day by focusing on this final point. A point that is grounded by the forgiveness of God that that God gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to start by talking about the myths of forgiveness. I think one of the reasons we we, we fail to forgive is that we we have a misunderstanding of what it is. And it hamstrings our capacity to forgive. So five myths, and we'll go through these quickly. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. You've heard that, but it's just not true. Forgiveness is not forgetting. God doesn't forget. Yeah, Jeremiah 31 says, I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. But God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And and this is a metaphor which was designed to stress God's grace in not holding us liable for our sin against him. He's canceled the debt. That's what Jeremiah means. Or that would undermine his omniscience. Furthermore, it's psychologically impossible to forget unless you develop some kind of memory loss. 
Second, forgiving someone doesn't mean you no longer feel the pain of the offense. The only way to stop hurting is to stop feeling. And the only way to stop feeling is to die emotionally. That's that's not a healthy place to be. And I I think this may be one of the main reasons for our reluctance to forgive, but we we don't want to be insincere. We know the pain is still there. Well, forgiving doesn't mean that you no longer feel the pain. Third, forgiving someone who has sinned against you doesn't mean you stop longing for justice. Vengeance and justice is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Paul says forgiveness just means you let God take care of it. You let God take care of it. Your job is... I love the vigilante movies. If if, if Charles Bronson's on, I'm watching. And and, and I love Taken. I, I mean, I love those movies... Because we've got a little inner vigilante in all of us, don't we? But ultimately, God says, you let him take care of that. He's a lot better at that than you are. He's really good at that. You trust him. Oftentimes, we think if we forgive, we're minimizing the sin. But that's not the case at all. It means you're trusting God to be the one who determines the appropriate course. Fourth, forgiveness doesn't mean that you make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. Doesn't mean you become a doormat. Boundaries are required. Love doesn't aid and abed. And at times you'll hear Christians wrestling over whether they should forgive someone who has not repented yet. But I think the problem there is confusing pardon with forgiveness. We don't have to remove all the consequences of sin. That's that's pardon in order to forgive. In fact, it's likely necessary and just for an offender to suffer the consequences for wrong. But forgiveness doesn't require pardon from consequences. It just requires absence of malice. Fifth, forgiveness is rarely a one-time event. It is with God in one sense. But we're humans. And every day we have to sometimes wake up and renew our minds and determine to forgive all over again. So let me close this with five truths on forgiveness and we'll be done. This is, I'll do this quickly. First of all, God in Christ, and this is the language Paul's using, forgave us by absorbing in himself the destructive consequences of our sin against him. In other words, in order to forgive us, Jesus absorbed the debt that we owed God. In other words, forgiveness is costly. It's costly. So if you're robbed, you can either make the wrongdoer pay or you can forgive. But forgiveness means, in that case, you absorb the debt. You absorb the debt of the wrongdoer. Second, God forgave us in Christ by canceling the debt we owed. The way we cancel the debt of someone who has sinned against us is by refusing to bring it up again. If if your spouse has, has wronged you and you say, I forgive you, and you keep bringing it up, you really haven't forgiven. Third, forgiving others as God has us, means we refuse to play the vigilante. We've already talked about that, but I've seen it numerous times. A spouse hurts another spouse, and then that spouse, not believing God can do his job well, has to play the role of Charles Bronson. And it causes devastation in in marriage. Fourth, forgiving others as God has forgiven us means that we do good rather than evil to them. Now, that's hard. It's not, you're not just neutral at that point. You're actually doing good. Repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink, Paul says. 
Remember, your witness and your growth in godliness is more important than your feelings. And then fifth, God forgave us in Christ by reconciling us to himself, by restoring the relationship that our sin had ruined. Now, at the human level, that does not mean that relationship will ever be the same. And I believe Scripture affirms there is a biblical, there is a biblical um, defense for certain divorces. There is a biblical case to be made for certain kinds of divorces. Unrepentant adultery being one of those reasons for divorce. I'm not saying that there's no place for divorce. What I'm saying is there's no place for keeping a perpetual enemy because God restored you to himself when you were an enemy to him. And so by forgiving, we show Jesus to others. We'll close here. By absorbing the weight of unjust accusation, undeserved pain, we are the Holy Spirit's message of the gospel to others. As we are kind and compassionate, tenderhearted, we are an epistle, Paul's epistle, Paul's letter to the world. And as I've said before, the biggest problem in our culture is not politics. The biggest problem in our culture is that the church hasn't been the church in the world. And Paul is saying, here are your marching orders. Here's how you become the church in the world. Here's how you become light to the world. Here's how you become salt to the world. There is no plan A. So we have to commit or plan B. We have to commit to plan A. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, I believe that every part of this passage has impacted us because that's what your word does. And I pray that where there is sin in each one of us, that this word would do its effect of sanctifying us. As Jesus said the night before the cross, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And I pray for that tonight, this morning. And I pray that for every Christian here. Lord, if there's any here that are not Christians, I pray that this text would convict them of their need to trust in Jesus. The one who embodied every positive aspect of this passage. And we ask this for his sake. Amen.